I'm just a dork. I sometimes like to clear my throat to the tune of the Final Fantasy uh, You Beat the Boss sound, and it makes me happy. I don't know if you should tell people that. Well, it's on audio. (laughs) I already recorded it like an asshole. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. Oh, yeah, we can finally use that without. Happy birthday, dear Topher. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> yep, it's Dover's birthday month. And so what, so, is it, what does that mean? We're covering John Carpenter all month. So, hey. hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Remember that time we watched Halloween? Which time we watched yeah. it so much? <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I was, I was about to start laughing as I said that. Yeah, um, we watched this probably once a month, I think. Yeah, yeah. Close to. It's been a joy, a pleasure. <laughs> Makes me happy. Makes me happy. Yeah, I'm Nicole. I am Topher. And we're the Horror Babes, covering Halloween. Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Dun, hey, dun. hey, hey, hey. Hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Yo, this theme song, I keep saying it. I, I said it on my Instagram yesterday because I rewatched the movie for the a billionth time. <laughs> um, there's nothing like this theme song that gets, like, nothing gets me going more than this. Oh, you're pumped. Oh my god, like, I was sitting in my bed, my cat was sleeping next to me, and I was, like, still in my pajamas and my glasses, and... I just was like vibing in my bed, like uh, like un, like it was almost unconsciously, like it just started happening, and I was like, oh my god! And then I caught myself like dancing, like it was fucking the new Megan Thee Stallion song or something, <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I'm a freak. Um, but that's why I do what I do, right? True. That's true. It's true. It's true. True. So we'll be doing the normal format it's here. It's a vibe. And uh, what does that mean? That means that Topher's going to take us through who made this thing, shout out the cast and crew, and then I'll take us through the plot, and then we'll go deeper into the movie and give y'all a nice, deep, deep analysis. Ooh. Ooh. So, Topher, who made this thing? Oh, the one and only John Carpenter directed this. It is... Who? <laughs> Dick. <laughs> Who's that? You know, he's just this sexy man who is like our favorite person. Um, and he's, he's just a big dope. fat nerd who loves directing things. Um, this is his third feature. So mm-hmm. we are early in his career here. Yeah. We're not going to be covering a Dark Star or Assault on Precinct 13 right. this month. They just don't quite neatly fit into our vibe. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware that we had a vibe, but cool. Yeah. Um, before that, he had done shorts. He had been, you know, in uh, he'd been a composer already for a couple of different films. That was his first. Uh, we talked about that in the last episode when we talked about the thing, but that was sort of how he broke in um, mm-hmm. was on the production side. Yeah. And this is the first collaboration between Carpenter and Deborah Hill, mm. who wrote uh, like she's who helped create this movie. Yeah. Um, she also wrote The Fog with him, Halloween 2, um, Escape from L.A., 
Hell yeah. So like she she did a lot, you know, like she's been Yeah. She died sadly in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um was a big big bummer. Um big bummer. but they had a they had a life, you know, lifelong friendship and um we'll talk a little bit you know, fuck it, I'll talk about her now. So Deborah Hill is like like prototype for a woman just shoving her way into Hollywood in yeah. the best way that she can, you know? Love it. While being, yeah. And there, there's a little bit of like girl bossiness in the way that people talk about this, like that very BuzzFeed girl boss vibe, which <laughs> I don't like because that's not really who she was. Yeah. You know, she's not a, a, a Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook or a, uh, oh, what's her fucking name? With, from Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes. Okay. Like she's not that type. Yeah. Where it's this very like fake feminist language sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So she was more, fuck you, pay me. Right. <laughs> um, and she's, she had talked a lot. She When she was alive, she talked a lot about just being like, Hollywood was and is a boys club, and I'm just doing everything I can to change that. Perfect. We um, love. Yeah, we love that's why that. she switched to more of a production role than a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, she found that she had a little more power there. She also found that she wasn't getting a lot of jobs as a writer, but she had enough cachet mm-hmm. as a producer to like be able to put money behind and you know put together things that would allow her to work more closely with and uplift other women. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, she didn't just do it for herself is what I mean to say. Like, that's the yeah. typical sort of girl boss vibe. It's like, I'm going to make my own way. I'm CEO. Yeah. And she was never that. Yeah. She was very much, as far as I can tell, I don't know. So it's hard to tell sometimes, like, what someone was really like and, you know, someone you didn't really know and all that. But it seems like everybody who worked with her is like, nope, she just really wanted to make Hollywood more of like just like filled the film industry in general a, a more accepting place for women behind the screen right and was doing that you know in the 70s and 80s yeah and you know she she was very vocal about the fact that she regretted not being able to work with more women directors because they weren't being allowed into the industry yeah they were being you know kept out and so that was where she that was more where she lived where she's like yeah she i worked with a lot of men and i did my best to uplift the women around me and behind me and you yeah know, whatever Absolutely. Um, never wanted to be selfish about her position. Is what it sounds like. Cool. Um, I'm a huge, huge Deborah Hill fan, and she does not get enough credit for being one of the major. It was an equal split in terms of writing between her and Carpenter, and they both said that that like this is as much his or her film as it is mine. You know. Yeah. So you have yeah Deborah Hill to thank for Halloween. Thanks, girl. Yeah, please don't tell me that the horror genre was not created and perfected by women. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> my God. Yeah. Literally it, created by Mary Shelley, so fuck out of here. Um, exactly. Yeah. My point exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. It's something. It's a It's a bug I have up my... I'm not sorry, but it's a bug I have up my ass about, like... <laughs> I've never who, heard that. <laughs> oh, yeah. A bug? Yeah. I've never heard that. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Learning new things every day. But yeah, it's a bug I have in my ass is that when people try to, we've talked about this a bunch of times, but if you're here to gatekeep about women in horror, fuck off. I don't care if you don't listen, go away. Boo. <laughs> you suck. Alienating listeners from the jump. Eh. So that's my like quick little bit about Deborah Hill. We'll talk about her more in our uh, third section of the podcast. Our Faux third show. act, if you will. Um, show. It was produced by... Well, produced and then financed um, by Erwin Yablans and Mustafa Akkad. So Mustafa Akkad was a uh, was a Syrian Syrian American uh, uh, producer, mm-hmm. um, and mostly he's a financier. He, so he's who funded, I believe, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and then put up the cash for this. Um, Yablans was the sort of like key producer, mm-hmm. like he was the EP for a reason. He was the one who made this happen. Yeah, um, he's the one who's like, yeah. Uh, he even br- was the one who 
kind of gave Carpenter the idea. Mm-hmm. Of like, hey, you should you should do this. Like, this is a cool idea. And he, Carpenter was like, it is a cool idea. Me and Hill, we got this. We got this, bro. So yeah, for actors, um, it's a relatively small cast. You know, there's people here and there, but they mostly float in and out. But it will, I'm going to just sort of cite our main few here. Sure. Donald Pleasance as Dr. Loomis. Named, of course, after Sam Loomis from Psycho, because mm-hmm. I'm going to say this a lot during this episode. John Carpenter's a big old nerd. Big old nerd. He literally has Laurie watching um, the thing from outer space <laughs> yep. in in the movie. Yes. So. so one little or two little fun facts I love about the character of Dr. Loomis when they were casting him, they initially wanted Peter Cushing. Mm-hmm. Amazing actor. Yeah. Uh, who you would know as Grand Moff Tarkin from Star Wars. One of my right. favorite performances. Such a small performance, relatively speaking. Right. But fuck me, he's so good in that role. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they turned, his agents turned it down because like, you're not, he, you can't pay him enough. He was just in Star Wars. It's, it's like, like, and he died. So. <laughs> yeah, so he's <laughs> he not going to be in another one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Peter Cushing, you know, had also done horror before he had played Dracula, mm-hmm. as had the other person who was offered the role before Do- before Donald Pleasance, Christopher Lee. Oh. I want that version of this and so does christopher lee he was like i was so he told carpenter and hill later he was like i was such a goddamn idiot no why didn't i take this role <laughs> he said it was the biggest mistake of his entire career wow that's huge <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm like oh man i'm just thinking about like i love donald pleasance he's very good in this mm-hmm. um and if you don't know who he is you would if you have seen the great escape a fantastic movie mm-hmm. or you only live twice a very fun movie where he plays Ernst Blofeld one of the most famous bond villains of all time yolo <laughs> um <laughs> i don't know what's wrong with me today <laughs> uh, i mean it's yolo's fine. not technically true for michael myers unless he just keeps not dying but it feels like he comes back from the dead a bunch yeah yeah he he's he's like a cat he's had at least yeah. 9 lives like yeah. literally I mean, I just can't get over the idea of seeing Christopher Lee in this movie. That'd be dope. It would have been so good. I'm glad to know he regrets it. I'm sure, <laughs> or yeah. Or did until I guess he's he's gone now. Oh, bummer. Rip. Yep. Nancy Loomis plays Annie Brackett, the daughter of the local sheriff of Haddonfield, Illinois, mm-hmm. and one of our core group of friends. Yeah. Um. Yeah. She's credited as Nancy Loomis. Her name now is Nancy Keys. Sure. The Always seems to be there, PJ Souls as always, Linda. Always, I do love, I do love PJ Souls. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to be mean to her. She's really fun in this movie with all of the totally. I would say, I would say that her, the best friend character in House of the Devil was definitely modeled after oh, Greta PJ Gerwig? Souls. Absolutely, yeah, yeah Greta Gerwig. That's, that's got like right. It's got, it's got the the big, the big uh, PJ Souls energy. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, 100%. I just, I didn't even put that together until now. And we covered that movie on this podcast. Yeah. PJ Souls seems to, she kind of plays like the, the best friend in high school perfectly. Like she's in Carrie. She's in, um, she plays a little bit different of a character in Carrie. Um, yeah. But she's still, she's still a best friend sort of sidekick. She's just on the, the wrong side of the, the story there. She's a really, she's a really good high schooler. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I'm sure she was like 30 when they filmed. She was married to Dennis Quaid when they filmed this. What? She was I didn't know she was ever married to Dennis Quaid. The yeah. dad from Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> among other things, but like that was when I was introduced to the hunk that is Dennis Quaid. Yeah. 
He's oh, got God. big dad energy no matter what. Yeah. He can't play anything else other than a daddy. Yeah, which is well, apparently the role he plays in his relationships, too, because I think he's with somebody who's in their 20s right now. <laughs> but hey, I'm here for it. I'd probably do it. Oh, just thinking about those cheekbones and that smile. Ooh. And his insane brother, who's on the still on the run from the law, I think. Oh, Randy Quaid. I don't know anything about that. Randy, Randy Quaid. God, I he's the one that. who he's the crazy dad in Independence Day. Oh hell yeah! The one who flies his jet into the into the ship. And he's running from the law. Yeah, he's he's not well. Sick. <laughs> Literally. Uh, fuck! I didn't even say this. I can't believe I didn't already say this. But Jamie Lee Curtis is Laurie Strode. Our I would say protagonist and yes. heroine who um, I unfortunately was introduced to through the Activia commercials. <laughs> I was like, girl, what are you doing? I was like, it's the Activia lady. My mom's a big fan of the movie true lies. So mm. I saw a lot of Jamie Lee Curtis as a kid, like on cable. Cause yeah. that movie was on all the time where she's married to Arnold Schwarzenegger and they're spies and doing things. And she drops an Uzi down the staircase and it kills everybody. <laughs> right. I think I've, I mean, I've only seen, um, I was introduced to her from like Freaky Friday, the oh, movie yeah, she yeah, did, yeah, yeah. the remake she did with Lindsay Lohan. Totally. And then I started seeing her like on the Activia commercial. So seeing her older stuff where she's, you know, like, uh, uh, like the Halloweens and then like the other movies where she's like super sexy and stuff. I'm like, right. I'm like, oh, the Activia lady. I mean, like, but you know it, what? Get your bag. I'm not here to, I'm not here to judge anybody. I will say those Activia commercials were like big 2005 lesbian energy. Oh my god! Yeah, the haircut, the haircut, the sweaters, and she was always just everything's like, like very like pristine white but cozy somehow. And she's she's just like talking about her gut health and yeah, yeah it's very it's very 2005. Reminds lesbian. me of my lesbian aunties who yeah, had yeah. the same haircut. You know, like oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's very worried about your gut health. Yes, which appropriately so because that's where most of your health comes from is your gut. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm. I think I'm. I keep mine a little bit padded. <laughs> keep it warm for the winter. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm turning into the Activia lady. I'm now talking about gut health. Oh my god. <laughs> Get you, your bag. You, yeah. You, <laughs> they need a new spokesperson. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm available. I'm really free. I really am, and I love yogurt. <laughs> okay, stop me. okay, please yeah, stop me, please stop me. Oh my god. So Jamie Lee Curtis was not like, not even really considered early on for the role, uh, and Carpenter was like didn't even know who the fuck she was. Right. He's like, he's like, he. There's a quote that he has where he's like, she, I knew she was on a TV show, but I didn't watch TV and didn't give a shit. So, <laughs> well, and then Deborah Hill was like, "That's Janet Lee's daughter, dude." Yeah, and he was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, we're in." <laughs> I like it her is, now. <laughs> that is kind of well. That's kind of the perfect. It's it's like she's horror royalty. Like she yeah, was exactly, born into yeah. a horror family, and it kind of just all worked out in this weird serendipitous way where she was also just perfect for this role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, she she seems like she really cut her acting chops in this role mm-hmm. in a really good way. Like yeah. I've got a few things about like her and Carpenter working together and why she loves working with him. Mm-hmm. Nick Castle was the actual body of Mike Myers. Oh, uh, he, you know, you're not going to know him from a ton of things other than this. I would imagine he's definitely worked a bunch, but he. He ended up going on to be more um, behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So he directed The Last Starfighter, which is a really fun movie. Yeah. Um, he helped write Escape from New York. Nice. Um, yeah, he's he he definitely moved on into uh, away from from writing yeah. after or from from acting after this. But he did come back and play Michael Myers again in 
the most recent uh, sequel. Sick. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed is already going to be in the one that's hopefully coming out this year. Ooh, excited. Yeah. I really loved the the new one. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. I was very drunk watching it, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Because that's the only way I go to the movies with my friend Lopez. <laughs> Shout <laughs> out to Lopez. With a pint of whiskey and our overalls. Oh, those were the times. <laughs> yeah. I, I never partook, but I... I Always, you always picked always us up after. Picked you guys up. Um, those are those. That was fun. Uh, uh, let's see. So beyond that, we had music from John Carpenter. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that bit's never gonna get old. Cinematography was from Dean Cundey. Film editing from Charles from Charles Bornstein and Tommy Lee Wallace, uh, who was also the production designer and infamous not infamous famous creator of the Michael Myers mask. Oh. Yeah, he, uh, everybody knows the story about how it's William Shatner's a mask of, it's a mask of like Captain Kirk, right? Yes, yes, I knew, I knew that. Yeah, that's like, it's one of the more popular known things about this, but, uh, the hair is fucked up. Yeah, so he did a bunch of like back combing on it. Yeah, it's gross. So he widened the eye holes, painted it this like bluish white color, and yeah, and then fucked with the hair a bunch. Yeah. And he was like, I'm really glad I did that. Because otherwise, a bunch of kids would have been checking their closets for Bill Shatner in the middle of the night. Oh, my God. <laughs> Mom. Mom, Captain Kirk's in my closet. Uh, <laughs> hilarious. Insert George Takei jokes here, because he always makes jokes about Bill Shatner being gay. Eh? Yeah, and then again, you know, you're always going to have a John Carpenter little cameo in a weird way. So he plays the voice of Paul. <laughs> Paul. Good old Paul. Good old Paul. Good for him. Yeah. Oh, and John Michael Graham is Bob. Sorry. That's uh, uh, Linda's boyfriend. Cool. That was the that was what I was reading about Dennis Quaid. Uh, Dennis Quaid was actually originally going to play Bob. That would have been tight. Yeah. Yeah. Seattle. Production companies were Compass International, Falcon International, and distribution was from Compass International and Aquarius Releasing. It came out six days before Halloween in 1978 with a runtime of 91 minutes. My favorite runtime. <laughs> you love that hour and a half mark. You know, I get in, I get out, I'm spooked, I feel great. Right. You know, <laughs> everything in it is necessary. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and again, this is a really low budget, 300K, which is three times the budget of Assault on Precinct 13, but uh, yeah, 300,000 yeah, bucks. That's that's pretty low. Yeah, and it made between 60 and $70 million Hell at yeah. the box office. It's made more beyond that. Uh, yeah, this of is, course. Um, easily, this is it, it is one of the top profiting indie films ever, which is wild. Again, money, yeah. stupid, but this is like why we were allowed to keep making indie films. It's like, oh, well, we can make a Halloween <laughs> for sure. For sure, I put in 300,000, I get millions, I will take that bet. You're like, oh, shit. if you're okay. rich, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Obviously, this is one of the largest franchises in history, yes. uh, at current 11 installations. Film-wise. Yes. With two more coming. There's also been books, comic books, video games. I think they were at one point going to do like a show or like mm-hmm. an animated show or something like that about it. Um, I don't know that that's totally true. I've just always heard rumors about that. Right. Um, and in 2006 was selected professor. And in 2006 was selected professor. I was taking that slow too. That's just hard to say. For preservation is hard to say. Yeah. I didn't do my vocal warm-ups. Yeah. 
And in 2006, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, in the quote. And fuck yeah, it is. It totally is. And I mean, we'll talk about it throughout this entire podcast, why people have become so obsessed with it. It's not even it's not even a cult following. Exactly. That's what John Carpenter is singing right now. Yeah. The Mariah Carey song. (laughs) Um, yeah, it, it's it's really interesting, and it, yeah, we'll we'll talk about it more later because it's there are so many different aspects to this movie and this franchise as to why people are obsessed with it. It's it's not just like a cult following or a cult classic. It's just a classic at this point. Totally, yeah. There definitely are some really diehard fans. <clears throat> Topher, Hi. Mm. Um, hello, Hi. <laughs> but, <laughs> and former guest of the podcast, Joe Wilson. Yes. Uh, uh, and and there are, there are significant reasons for that. I think one being just studying the we're, we're all interested in the human brain whether you want to admit it or not mm-hmm. um once we come across someone that we don't fully understand we want to know more and i think that that's where we got like the rob zombie um 2007 right kind of reboot Seven and yeah 2007 2009 i think i think even Both. though even yeah. though that one was i in my opinion was not a very good movie yeah pretty bad i think that it was what people wanted they want to know more about like the history of like why. Yeah. And again, um, I always talk about the good bad binary with children, and this one falls kind of in like the like bad kid because yeah. you you already have the shocking part, which I'll get into the plot in just a moment. But you've already got the very shocking reveal in the opening that mm-hmm. Michael Myers is a child. Yeah. A child in a clown suit on a Halloween, you know, and, and has just committed murder. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it's a great opening. It's one of my favorite openings. It really um, is. It's a really good bait and switch. You yes. Know? Yes. And I think that that is something that just immediately drew people in as like, oh, okay, we're starting off on a really fucked up note. Where is this even going to go? Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, it just presents questions on questions on questions which is why in my opinion people keep going back to this franchise um because they just want to know more it's a deep well yeah um i really loved the sequel the retcon sequel that just came out a couple years ago we were just talking about um from david gordon green i want to say yeah which carpenter wrote and produced yeah it was like his first time back with it since the second one yeah um, I know he worked on Halloween 3, but he kind of was just like, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> oh, what a bad movie. Yeah. Um, Do you so, have anything else for us on um, who made this thing? No, I was just kind of thinking more about that. I just wanted to kind of go with you for a second on that. Oh, okay. Uh, like a little bit of just brief legacy moment. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I think it's, I think you're right about wanting to delve back into the characters of everyone because it goes, Yeah. it really is this sort of like uh, devil and God situation. Yes. Except in the, in the 2018 one, because it's, it's Laurie Strode 40 years later and she's a fucking nutcase. Yeah. And (laughs) fighting a nutcase, Michael Myers. So like, it's interesting and it does delve into like, it sort of retcons the psychology of the first one and like mm-hmm. kind of throws Loomis under the bus, which is where he belongs. Right, right. <laughs> and so like, yeah, I, I appreciate that it there are good and bad returns to this. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been some really fucking bad sequels to this movie. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah, but this even the, even the original sequel that that Hill wrote or not, that uh, uh, Carpenter did, like it's it delves more into it. It goes back into his backstory. Yeah, and I think that's really where you where you need to go because it's hard. It's really hard to live up to the ideas that this first one had 
and to revisit and to continue the narrative in this way without it getting boring of just, you know, because slasher films, as enthralling as they can be, they can be just as boring as they are enthralling. If, if things just keep happening, you, you always know what's going to happen. You always know there's going to be a final girl. You always know, like, all. it's a formula that certainly works, but it can certainly bite you in the ass if, you're, if you don't get creative with it. Yeah. It's one of those that, like, I, I tend to be of the opinion that if you're going to make a great slasher film, know that you're going to hit it and quit it. Yes. Don't franchise. Yeah. That's, that's not 100% right, but I think the exceptions prove the rule. Yeah. Um, they, they always get silly. Oh yeah, definitely. And that's fine if you want to do that. Well, I and I think any, yeah. I think I think with the the times kind of changing like this again, uh this franchise really revved up in the age where every Friday night after school you'd take your date to the movies. Like that was the sure, huge yeah. thing to do. And you'd be like, okay, we're going to go see the new Halloween movie. Yeah, we're going to go totally, see the new this, yeah. Friday the 13th. And it's not so much that anymore with all of the entertainment that's available to us with Netflix and chill and, mm-hmm. you know, all of those well, and things. Marvel became that too. Marvel, Marvel definitely. Took it over. Yeah. 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 And so I think that it's, it, this was kind of one of the, uh, one of the first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, the way it was able to capitalize on that was just like an amazing um, storm that nobody expected. Definitely. And, and it what just, it spawned, yeah. Yeah, and it just became like everybody's plans on mm-hmm. a Friday night and that's how it made so much money. I don't think, I, I don't think if it was made today, it would have done as well um, because of that, because it, it wouldn't have been as much of like a cultural thing. Um, right, yeah. It's always hard to judge that, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think it's... I, with that being said, this franchise has given us so many amazing movies Definitely, off of this. Like yeah. I can just name name some off the cuff. We got It Follows from this. We got, um, I would argue that we got Sleepaway Camp from this. Definitely. We got um, Get Out. Get Out from this. We got. I mean, everyone pulls from from Carpenter, whether it's House the music. Of the devil. Whether it's oh, definitely House of the Devil. I mean, I think I, I already even mentioned that. Yeah. Um. I'm just thinking just in terms of cinematography, what, how much has been lifted from this movie. Exactly, exactly. Literally so just in that. Whether it's whether or not it's a slasher movie that we're talking about, there has definitely been um, similar cinematography in movies today. Yeah. And it, again, that's we talked a little bit about it in our episode um, about the thing, about what we mean when we say, like, that's so Carpenter. I love it because we always mm-hmm. love You know, it's like it's something you can spot. And the music too. Stranger Things, one hundred percent owes everything it is owes to John everything Carpenter. Everything it is, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's Lopez directly. Lopez and I fight about that all the time, but I'm like, no, Stranger Things is just John Carpenter. Yeah, like the, there's um, plenty of other references. There's other references and like small course. things like that. Like Lucas is a big influence on it as well. Yeah, and so is Spielberg. Well, and the main like, char- one of the main characters' name is Nancy from yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. Like yeah. it's there have been different different. Um, Nancy and Mike. Yeah, yeah. There are definitely (laughs) different influences, but John Carpenter is a fucking strong one, even just basing it off of the theme song. Yeah. Those two theme songs slap, by the way. That's the other one is the um is the Stranger Things theme song. That will get me going. Which also feels like a reference to Carpenter's albums. Yes. Hundred percent. Yeah. All right. So I guess now we're at the plot. Plot. It's Halloween. Yes. That's it. That's, That's the plot. It. That's the plot. That's the plot. It's Halloween. <laughs> We're in 1963 in Haddonfield, Illinois, which I suppose is fictional. 
It's not. It's not real. It is. It's named after um, Haddonfield, New Jersey, where Deborah Hill grew up. Sick. Um, we've got a six-year-old Michael Myers who stabs Judith, who is his older sister, and naked. And naked. Yeah, we've got. I I do really really love this shot where it's like through the eyes of the mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, Judith gets stabbed to death with a kitchen knife, and so that then we get the shocking shot the bait and switch that we were talking about earlier where we are shown that it's like a child. Like Michael yeah. Myers is a child. Um, he's, yeah. Cause they pull the mask off the camera. Yes. And it's cut. It cuts out to third person view and you're staring at a kid holding a bloody kitchen knife in yeah. a clown costume. It's awesome. Michael, Michael, Michael. <laughs> um, so then he's incarcerated at Smith's Grove sanitarium. Um, then we've got a 15 years later, it is All Hallows Eve. Uh, no, that's Halloween. It is Halloween Eve. (laughs) (laughs) And Michael's psychiatrist, this is where we meet Sam Loomis, Dr. Sam Loomis, Mm -hmm. and Marion Chambers, who is his colleague, they are at the sanitarium to escort Michael to court. Michael steals their car. <laughs> Michael steals their car and escapes. Who and he also ends up killing a mechanic so that he can wear like our famous uh, suit, right? Because he's in yeah, he's in like a, a hospital gown. Yeah. So once he gets back to Illinois or or to the hometown, he steals a white mask, the one that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sees Lori. This is where we're introduced to Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Lori Strode. Uh, she drops off a key at the abandoned house. They No one has lived there for, for forever. Yeah, her dad's um, a realtor, and she's just like, oh, i yeah. got to go drop off this key. Exactly. Um, and Lori sees Michael... Like in school, it like he's stalking her essentially, and she keeps yeah. seeing him, and is just like that's fucking. And weird. she's the only one who's noticing him for sure. Yes, definitely. And um, this is when we meet her friends Annie and Linda, um, and they're like, oh, you know, like you're you're not really seeing these things, like you're crazy, all these things. <laughs> um, so then Loomis is in Haddonfield in search of Michael, and it's where he finds Judith's uh, tombstone is it's missing. It's Which not, just like, good lord. It's not there anymore. <laughs> the, he and the gravekeeper or whatever talk about that too. Of like, it's just like, how did he even get this out? Yeah. Well, that's where the that's where the whole that's where the whole idea of Michael Myers somehow being like superhuman. Yeah. That's just part of like the evidence that some fans have for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Doctor Loomis meets with Annie's father, who is Sheriff Lee Brackett. And um, they go into Michael's house and they're checking it out because they're still looking for Michael. He tells he tells Brackett that Michael is pure evil. Evil. <laughs> I can um, only think of Mermaid Man now. Thank you for that. Thank you. Evil. I've definitely made that joke stoned watching this movie before. It's incredible. And Brackett's like, I don't think so. It's, I'm sure it's fine. Um, I have children, but I'm sure it's fine. I shouldn't be worried. It's, it's Halloween. <laughs> it's fine. This um, crazy old kook. Exactly. 
but he still kind of like goes to look for this guy. He's like, yeah. he, he's he's out on the streets of this suburb looking for this guy. Um, and Loomis is still at the house uh, thinking that Michael will, you know, go to his childhood home. Yeah. And we um, get the revolver shot. Yeah. Or the a, first sign of a revolver. Yes. And I mean, this is this is exactly what you would think that a psychiatrist would do. It's, of course. Every know. shrink I've ever had always carries a loaded and cocked pistol. <laughs> Return to the scene of the crime. So we find out that that uh, that night, Lori is going to babysit Tommy Doyle. Mm-hmm. And her friends are also babysitting. And this is where we get like that really, really silly joke where they're walking home from school and they're like, you know, talking about their plans and stuff. And um, one of the girls is like, you know, she only babysits so that she can have a place to. And then Lori realizes that she forgot one of her books at school. So she goes, shit. And the other girl's like, I have a place to do that. <laughs> like, oh, my God. The it's jokes. It's a good joke. The it's jokes. a great joke. I love it. I don't hate it. No I problem just, so far. It stuck out to me this last time that I watched <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, you were I texting was like, me while I was at work. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, the jokes. I love um, it. So Annie is babysitting Lindsay, who is across the street. So mm-hmm. Lori and Annie are right across the street from each other working that night, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michael is obviously there he's just always always lurking around always there he is spying on annie and ends up killing the fucking dog like leave the dogs alone leave the animals alone i don't need this well they put it in there to show that he could do anything sort of thing like he has just gone past the point of no return but like still so sad (laughs) i don't want to see it and so Tommy, who Lori is babysitting, sees Michael from the window that he's looking out and calls him the boogeyman. Yeah, he's terrified. Yeah. Tommy's a little scared boy. He is. And and Lori's just like, okay, uh, sorry for making you watch the thing from outer space, but uh, you're (laughs) freaking out now, man. And Annie takes... This is... Bad babysitting 101. <laughs> she takes the kid, Lindsay, over to um, over to Lori, over to the Doyle house, because um, she she wants to go pick up her boyfriend, Paul, um, so that they can, yeah, so they can have sex or fool around or whatever. So she's literally like, I'm still going to get paid for this babysitting job, but you're going to do the work, Lori. Mm-hmm. Um, and... But at this point, when she gets into the car to go pick up Paul, Michael is has been in the back seat and strangles her, slits her throat, you know, typical slasher shit. Nice and gruesome. Yeah. So and there's that whole bit with the washing machine too, where she like spills something all over herself and she's just like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And like yeah. goes and like has to do laundry and gets stuck in the window. Yes. Yes. That part's, that part's great. Then we've got Linda and her boyfriend, Bob. They show up at the Wallace house where Lindsay, the, the kid that, that Annie, where Annie was, yeah. was babysitting. It's all, it's all confusing, but um, not really. So they find it. It's empty. And they go, Fook. And Bob runs downstairs to get, you know, beer. Um, Linda's, like, smoking a cigarette in bed. Like, it's... It's a vibe. It's, it's a vibe. Um, Michael ends up pinning him to the wall with... So hardcore. With a kitchen knife. It's it's pretty insane. Um, and then he pretends to be Bob, but he's in this, like, shitty ghost costume. I mean, like, a sheet <laughs> or whatever. And Linda's like, you see something you like? And, you know, it's it's, like, this whole... 
like, you know, sexy thing. Um, but then she keeps like teasing him and all this stuff. And she's like, okay, I'm like done with this like weird sexting like game. I, I I'm over it. So she calls Lori to, she's like, oh yeah. Um, so our friend Annie, who was like supposed to be here, where is she? They like have sex before she decides to like, right. it's yeah. hilarious. It's a very slow um, decision. And she's like, Ugh. She's like, what What happened to Annie? Like, what the fuck? Um, and this is when Michael strangles Linda with with the phone cord and Lori's listening on the other end and it's just like, oh God, like, why you did you- You guys are gross. Yeah, like, why'd you call me? And this is, while all of this is happening, Loomis is still looming around <laughs> and um, finds a stolen car and is like searching the streets for mm-hmm. Michael. Then Lori, after after she after she hangs up the phone, is kind of like, well, maybe that wasn't what I thought it was. She's kind of like, what? Yeah. Why would? It, because at this point, we don't have like cell phones where we can like butt dial people or whatever. Right. You had it's to make not, a conscious choice to call somebody. Yeah. So she was kind of like, oh, I don't have a great feeling <laughs> about this. So she goes she goes across the street over to the Wallace house, and what does she find? She finds her friend's bodies. Such a and, great series of reveals here. Yeah, and. In addition to the bodies, she finds the the headstone, mm-hmm. Judith's headstone, which is in the upstairs bedroom where, um, which I guess is a callback to the beginning of the movie. It's not the same house, but it's, um, he, he kills her in an upstairs bedroom, right. we assume. And uh, she's she's a little freaked out, you know, it's, it's not normal to find those things on like a night that you're just like babysitting a kid. Yeah. Usually it's pretty chill. Um, but after finding like her, her, her dead friend's bodies and all of this creepy shit, she's just like, she's a little scared, you know, you know? Just justifiably, like a little, a little scared. justifiable amount for sure. Um, and so she starts running and screaming and Michael, um, suddenly appears as he does. Like that's yeah, just like one of his, up. his, they, like he waits until someone's vulnerable and just like pops up. Mm-hmm. You never know where he's at. It's a bit of a whack-a-mole situation. Yeah. Um, he slashes her arm. So she, you know, falls over the stairway banister. Um, she's pretty Oof. hurt because ouch, hardwood, ouch. <laughs> yep. She, she escapes, but narrowly. She's back at the Doyle house where she's like, she's like, kids, like, hide, like, ah, like, it's, it, but also it's let a boogeyman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like screaming for them to let him in, let her in. And then we've got, you know, Michael, who's, who's just persistent as fuck. Um, Always walking too, never running. Oh, yeah. There's no urgency in that man. It's what makes it more terrifying. Yeah, there's zero urgency. Um, and he, he sneaks in through the window and she ends up stabbing him in the neck with like a knitting Oof. needle, which why my question is, why are all of her weapons like very housewifey? Yeah, it's all domestic weapons. There's a yeah. whole um, I know we've talked about them before, but the Bechdel cast has a lot of good analysis. If you ever want to listen to a like, more pointed feminist analysis of uh of slasher films go listen to any of their episodes about slasher films definitely they bring it up all the time and they talk about it a lot um it's they have a much deeper analysis than we're really able to do here Um, yeah and it's there's a whole lot of discussion of tying women to domestic implements as weapons as opposed to guns or knives or what have you yeah it's 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 one of those things where traditionally men have very phallic weapons like kitchen knives kitchen knives are 
in, in a way they're phallic. Sure. Yeah. Um, and women have like, yeah, like knitting needles or hangers. I think even Lori has a hanger. Yeah, I know. She one. stabs him in the eye with a hanger. Yeah. Or like an iron. Yeah. You know, even frying pan. Frying pan. Yeah. It's, it's all domestic weapons. And yeah, like you said, men tend to have like guns and bats. bats. Like, and it's, yeah, I'll I'll definitely get in get into a little bit of the feminist theory here because I'm me. Um yeah. but but yeah, I just it's something that I definitely notice in slasher films more than anything uh because right. there is such a a lot of commentary on gender and sex yeah. in slasher films. Like the to get it out of the way, the the explanation that's the easy explanation that's given is that it's just things that are at hand. Right. Um, and all of that, but I don't, that doesn't get at the root of it. It um, doesn't because it could easily, like, I would argue if Lori was coded male, mm-hmm. that she would have been like, oh, yeah, my dad has a gun in his, in right. the safe or like in his room. I don't even think safes were a huge thing in, in 1978, but like, yeah. or but they like, would have, she would have had a bat or something yeah, like that. Yeah. She, she would have known where. Else something is but then again she's she's babysitting at a foreign like she's at a house that she doesn't really know so i don't know that kind of checks out but i've just seen other ones where they're in their own home and they still go for like the frying pan or whatever and if it were someone coded as male they probably would have been like yeah my dad has a shotgun under his bed yes you know and like would have they would have the character would have just known that exactly yeah and yeah that's kind of where i'm like "Mm, doesn't necessarily fly for me yeah men aren't made to seem desperate in these situations yeah 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 exactly so after she gets him in the neck with the knitting needle um she you know thinks he's dead because at this point we don't think he's superhuman we're just like okay yeah like you you she's probably hit a major artery Mm -hmm. i would assume and he's gonna bleed out um so she goes she goes to get the kids but then who shows up again to attack her none other than michael myers she hides in the closet and this is where he finds her again and she stabs him in the eye with a coat hanger, like we said, and in the chest with his own knife. So she's yeah. able to apprehend the weapon that he has and mm-hmm. uh, gets him in the chest. And then she's like, you know, yelling at the kids, like, go to a neighbor's house. I don't know. I don't know any of these people, just but like, just here. go, go next door and tell them to call the police or call the police yourselves. Like, just we need we need the police in this instance and then after which honestly i mean the police won't save you no matter what but especially if you have like a superhuman dude like no (laughs) um the only thing they could possibly do is bring bring him back to where he was incarcerated but it's if he escaped once i'm sure he can escape again (laughs) this is where we get the juicy slasher moment where he's still not dead Mm -hmm. not even injured enough Where he sits up is so in the background of the shot so terrifying we get you know the very slow and we're this is the part where like if you're in the movie theater and you're seeing it for the first time you're like girl turn around girl oh my god like (laughs) why are you still here why yeah like what is happening get out of there girl Lori, you in danger, girl. Like, get out. <laughs> so this is where Loomis comes back. He sees the kids, like, running from the house. And he's like, okay, I think I think that's probably where the dude is. Me, my bald head, and this trench coat got a date with death. We got a date with death. <laughs> so he finds Michael and Lori. They're, you know, having their, their typical slasher, like, final final girls shit. You know, mm-hmm. like, they're, they're fighting. And 
Lori rips Michael's mask off and he kind of like hesitates to put it back yeah, on. Yeah, he freaks out. It's a human moment where he's like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, put my put in my face, not my face. It, it's, it's his kryptonite in a way. Like he doesn't yeah. want his, you know, actual face to be seen. And and there there are arguments of since since as a child he committed his first murder with a mask on that there's a there's a strange identity switch when all of that happens. Yeah, it's something that I always sort of sorry, am I cutting you off? No. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's something that that I used to regard this as a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, even, but in the last couple of years, I've thought about it more and more, and I actually like this moment more and more. Yeah. Because um, my initial argument had always been, he's just a force of evil, so why would you reveal his face? That's not the important thing. Yeah. It, it could, you could argue that it makes too much importance on the man behind the mask. Yeah. I have changed that opinion um, in the past few years, where I'm like, actually, no, it's great that she does this, and that this is this weird little moment. Right, because at first you could think that they're trying to sympathize with, like, tell yeah. you that there is a person behind all of this, you know, like, mass murdering, like, mm-hmm. craziness or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's, it, it, I don't even know if it's a sympathy thing, but it is, well, and I guess in a, in a sort of, like, strict sense of the word it is, where it's like, oh, right, this person is human, not just... Beast or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. There is some <laughs> sort of humanity, like, desires and things, and, like, and, 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 like uh, uh wishes or whatever what have you you yeah yeah absolutely so this is where loomis loomis has a gun and we saw that in the beginning he shoots michael six times and he falls off of the balcony and this is where they talk about like michael is the boogeyman Mm -hmm. um he walks to the balcony and Michael's gone, like not even just like his butt, like he's no trace. gone, no trace. And Laurie just like sobs in his arms, just breaks down, breaks down. Is like, what the fuck Again, just happened to fair. me? I just yeah. saw three of my friend's dead bodies and had an attempted murder happen at me. And then, well, I was just a- trying to watch some kids <laughs> to make like 20 bucks. Yeah, like, right. It's crazy. So we get like a cool sort of montage to end this movie of the audio is presumably Michael's breathing but we get like yeah. heavy breathing and the visuals are different significant places that we were in the movie mm-hmm. so it kind of it sets you up for a sequel because it makes you assume that he could be anywhere because mm-hmm. he vanished uh yeah. so yeah that's the end of the movie yeah it's it's a fun one i like it a lot mm-hmm. it's funny carpenter was like yeah that's just a, he, he was not thinking sequels because again that wasn't su- that wasn't super a thing at this time Right, but I think um, I do think it is always good to leave it open ended because a it makes people ask questions about well, that's the what movie. He to do, yeah, yeah, whether or not you're planning on making a sequel or not, I think it's always good to because then people revisit it, or at least I do. Yeah, that's my favorite type of thing is something that doesn't have all of the uh, questions answered, something that's left up to interpretation, something with a as as much as uh, uh, cliffhanger endings piss me off. I, I do like them. Definitely. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, we talked about that with the thing too. This is sort of like, um, at least in some of his horror films, this is not necessarily a trope of Carpenter's, but it's something he does do when he can make the story do that. Yeah. But yeah, so it was, um, it was definitely something that he did on purpose. He and Hill were like, oh, this is so fun. Yeah. Why not? You know? Of course. This, this movie is clearly like a reference to older films, mm-hmm. um, but it created a new genre. It created the slasher genre. Yeah. It is certainly something that, we now know to be just like a staple 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had a slasher probably every year since 1978. Definitely. And people are reinventing even more. And I think it's always good to have a baseline, which I'm obviously going to talk about the final girl trope and how Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie is coded as a little bit of a tomboy. She's definitely different from her two friends. She has she has not really any interest in sex. Um, she kind of just wants to do well in school and make some money on Halloween as opposed to go party. Yeah, I mean, so we don't see, like, so, so Carpenter and Hill both have pushed out back about this, that, like... Mm-hmm. He's he said like people are like you made a pre- like this is all about purity and morality and like she survives because she doesn't fuck. And he's like no, nope, I was just trying to make normal people. I just right. wanted to make like relatable normal people I knew in high school and that Deborah knew in high school. Like yeah. that's who these characters are. There there is no point to this. I just wanted to make an exploitation film because I thought it would be fun. Right, and that is where I have to bring up though intent versus impact because the message that this sends is and and what it's set up for other horror films to either make fun of if we've got like you know uh um any of the spoof slashers um cabin in the woods or like anything any any other what tucker and dale versus evil so like any yeah yeah any spoof is going to snowball off of this yeah and what we were set up to believe here is if you do anything impure or you know i put that in air quotes if you make out have sex don't do your schoolwork do all like you're you're any of these things then you are the are the victim of death mm-hmm. and that that happens It'd be one thing if it happened to men as well, but the fact that it's always women who are not allowed to be deviant or whatever, then it would maybe be saying something else, but it's always the women who, like the boyfriends, the boyfriends die, but it's male gaze pointed at the woman. Sure, yeah. And I mean, we see Lori smoke weed in this too. Like, Yeah. We see her smoke cigarettes. We see her smoke weed. Like, she's not... This is this is why I, this is like my one pushback is that she's not really pure in the sense that later slashers did this right yeah she does like to party she does do those things she's a square on Halloween because she wants to make cash and study yeah and I mean I I guess I could I could rationalize it as he wanted to make the main character a little bit alienated like he like she's not like her other friends she's still friends with them but she's not yeah she's not like them which we often do that with our main characters. We make them feel a little bit different. They're a little, maybe a little more broody. And, and you, you create these comedic, you create these, these characters for comedic relief. Yeah. That are, which arguably you could say her two friends who are, you know, um, in using the loving term bimbos. Yes. Like uh, TikTok has, thank God, turned that term into like some form of like empowerment, which I'm so down for. Def, def. I like it. Be whoever you want to be. You know what I mean? But I don't know. I just so I talk a lot about how the final girl trope is rooted in misogyny and it definitely is. But it is an advancement from what we got from like Psycho, where it's just like women being hysterical and yeah and plot devices yeah and plot devices they don't the lack of agency just causes like like things just happen to them mm-hmm. and they they show us the meaning instead of create that what um not a living dead does that too yeah exactly Very progressive in some ways not in others yeah yeah so 
in a way, the final girl trope did advance us in like some weird backwards way where what ends up happening is the final girl takes on traditionally masculine narratives mm-hmm. where where most of the time our slasher our slasher villains are white men, right? Mm-hmm. And the you final like in everything but Candyman, yeah. Everything but Candyman, yeah. Ex- that's the exception. But other than that, it classically has been like white. Exactly. Like there's yeah, a no, reason. Yeah. There's a reason why that mask was painted like a bluish white, like the palest of pale whites. There's mm-hmm. a reason for yeah. that. And what the final girl does is in the middle of the movie is she emasculates him in a way where the final girl takes on traditionally. I'm being careful with my words here because traditionally masculine roles in movies of fighting the bad guy. Yeah. Um, Luckily, I think with that becoming more common, we can throw away the traditionally masculine part of this. Mm -hmm. But if we're thinking about it in the context of the time in 1978, we really didn't have any of those moments from women in movies. Mm -hmm. We had the hysterics. We had the falling into someone's arms. Like I call it a horror Pollyanna um, where they don't even know what the fuck to do. I'm like, bitch, grab something heavy. That's it. Like, (laughs) you know, and I, I would argue that I don't think that we would have further advancements of the final girl if we didn't have this original movie. So I'm kind of stuck in this place where I see the cracks and I see the problematic tropes in this movie definitely but i don't think that we would have gotten the advancement that is like nev campbell in scream or any of these other movies um like the remake of evil dead with mia being so powerful at the end i don't think that we would have gotten these things without establishing what the final girl is Mm -hmm. as opposed to just having a hysterical woman falling into a man's arms yeah um and there's criticisms of like oh, well, Lori's our heroine, but why does Loomis have to come in and save her? Yeah. But the fact that he doesn't even kill him is a huge key to that. Yeah, like there's ways to interpret this and there's ways to reinterpret this, right? And so yeah. like, I, I agree with you. There are cracks. This is not a perfect film by any means. I'm going to talk about mental health in a little bit, but like mm-hmm. it's it's definitely not a perfect film in the, I guess, societal morality sort of sense. Um, yeah. But I do see, so yeah, I see those cracks, right? But I also see where we can look at this through certain lenses. Like um, um, feminist author uh, Carol Clover yes. has written extensively about uh, feminism so in the horror genre. This. Yeah, yeah. I've read. I haven't read any full books of hers, but I've read some papers here and there. You know, when I was in in school and I had free access to all of these like for sc- sure. uh, classic papers and shit, I would just do that for fun. Like, her library is my huge. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's extensive. Mm-hmm. Definitely problems with her work, but and broadly speaking, makes some pretty good points. Yeah. So she was the one, yeah, who made that point about uh, Loomis not even killing him, right? Mm-hmm. She also is like, Lori does damage. Yeah, oh, Even yeah. with the, we talked about that, like, looking at that, that she's like, no, 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 this is like, she she, she fucks him up. Yeah. But I think that, that I think that is an interesting thing, you know, like, of, but yeah, that, that her household weapons yeah. do as much damage or more than the revolver does. For sure. And I think that, that is, it's just an important thing to like, think about. Um, and she notes that, like, before Halloween, every woman was a helpless victim. Yes, uh, yes. And that's what I was the, getting at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That at least the final girl gives some amount of agency yes. to women in film. It's not perfect by any means, but it was a, it was a 1970s advancement, right? 
Yeah. Right? And we can stand on those shoulders now and do better. And we have. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was what I was getting at. I think I think, too, it just it's easy to choose when people are vulnerable, when you decide to kill them off. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's why we've got the shower scene in Psycho. That's why that's actually why a lot of people die while they're having sex. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in a vulnerable position. You're not thinking about anything else, hopefully, yeah. unless it's really bad. Yeah. They're not on guard. You yeah. know, you're, yeah. you're, your guard is down. You've if just been really... stoned, yeah. Well, you've just been really intimate with someone. You've, like, literally the act of having sex is letting your guard down. Yeah. Taking your clothes off, you yeah. know? So, and I, and I think that we've become a little bit more creative than that with our deaths and which sends a little bit more of a positive message about feminine sexuality and all of that where it's like, it's like you can have sex and do what you want and also kill the guy. Yeah. You know, and again, that's where... That's where um, in Scream we get we get Nev Campbell who just added on to the final girl and made it made it even less problematic. Um, and I think that I mean I'm excited to see what these new up and coming writers are, have to say about the final girl and what they what they show us mm-hmm. um, because I think that we can do a lot with that and that uh, the power that that women inherently hold because it's so easy to. Like I said um, before, when uh, there's a reason why his mask was painted like stark white, mm-hmm. where there it, it could be a commentary about how fragile masculinity can be in the moment that a woman starts emasculating a man, it becomes like a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that horror has always edged towards that. And there have been many studies of like, why do women continue to watch horror films when they get mutilated, when they get, you know, killed in in the most brutal of ways, and they're treated terribly. And, you know, like if, if you watch a movie where people are watching a horror film, the men are leading in closer and the women are traditionally like, covering their eyes or cuddling with someone or hiding, hiding themselves. Um, and that's just, that's just an atrocious stereotype. I'll say that for sure. But, um, aside from it, I think that women go back to horror films because we see them a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. I think that on the surface, you can see them as like male gazy and this weird fulfillment of like overtaking a woman. Sure. But I think what I think, at least from my standpoint and my opinion on all of the horror films that I've seen in my in my short lifetime, I think what we see are glimmers of what it could be. And we see badass women emasculating men in these slasher films. And that is something that empowers us and excites us. It's more of like a hope of where it's going to go. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about this too, like something to take away from this is the way that this is at least complicated in how we view the women in this film is the fact that there is a woman in the writing process. Yes. Deborah Hill wrote all the dialogue for our three babysitters. Yeah. um, Where Carpenter wrote like Loomis's dialogue, right? The only other really male character in the film with lines other than um, um, the sheriff. Yeah. And even he's barely in it. Um, So I think that's interesting that like it's, after this, we didn't see that as much, right? Because women weren't involved in the writing process for these future, the following slasher films that came out after this. And I think yeah. that's where we developed the harm, most harmful versions of the final girl trope. Because 100%. We, we, the first one had women in the room. Yeah. And the remainders didn't. Yeah. Outside and of like the art department. Well, yeah. And that's where, that's where you kind of get this split, this divide of like, 
what did you get out of this? And what you got out of this is what you end up creating. And us seeing that is kind of like, oh, that's harmful. What you got out of that? Like, yikes. Um, You really misinterpreted that, um, which art is up for interpretation. And that can certainly be scary. Um, but it can also be a good thing. Like I said, like, I think, I think Wes Craven took a lot from this in a good way, in a good way. Um, so I don't know. It, it always, it always goes, goes different ways. And I'm, while I, I, like you said, I certainly see the cracks in this. And I think that the impact was not as great as I would like for it to have been. Um, I still, I still love this movie. Like I said, I think it gave us a jumping off point for the final girl where you you have to define something first in order to advance it. And I'm glad that we're not sticking with um, this damseling of women. Yes. Yes. Um, Lori definitely is a whole full person who has her fears and she definitely has her kind of screamy moments and everything. But I don't think it would be super realistic if she didn't. Yeah. Um, I think anyone would be fucking scared um, in this situation. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I have issues with this, but I, I also think that it's brought us a lot of good things. Yeah, I don't know. I have a complicated yes, yes. Uh, viewpoint on it. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I mean, and like, I also don't need to say too, too much about this. Um, a lot of people have written about this extensively. You can yes. go find them. It's not hard <laughs> to find. But the mental health as pure evil thing sucks. And I'm really glad that I'll just say that. It's like, yeah. no, no, no. And Carpenter was wrong in that interpretation. And he admits that. And he's like, oh, yeah, no. And then he fixed it in the 2018 one. Right. That's basically all I have to say about that. It's like you, mentally ill and mentally unhealthy folks or whatever. you, Neurodivergent folks are not evil or bad any more so than anyone else's. Um, yeah. The yeah. demonizing of that is not chill. No. And it's it's barely there honestly when you go back and rewatch it it's loomis is the only one who makes a big deal about it and because he's the psychiatrist right and it doesn't feel further in like when you watch the film it's like oh that's barely in there it's there and it sucks that it's there but it's barely there yeah um (laughs) but i just love the way it says pure evil Um, evil yeah so let's talk about some fun shit yeah uh, cinematography on this movie is the probably Iconic. most important thing about it. Um, beyond beyond creating the slasher genre. So I guess the second most important thing. Um, but the follow shots, the shaky cam, the... Well, just, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So that was this was one of the first movies to use Steadicams, which yeah. were like brand new at the time, right? Yeah. Like that full rig. Um, it was it gave us a chance. Uh, the only time we had really seen anything like this before was 1974's Black Christmas. Mm. Uh, Bob Clark's Black Christmas from 74. Yeah. Which is very good. But before this, this was that was the only movie that you actually had a point of view shot from the killer. Right. Um, which and, we've seen a thousand times since. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's been used to greater and lesser degree. But this one's so amazing because you not only have the shot, you have the sound that goes with it. And the distances kept allows for this really beautiful depth of foreground and background. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about depth of field and shots, like we're talking about how much visual information you can take in. Yeah. Um, so when shots are really tight and close, it's very hard to do that. Yeah. Using this, all of these as long shots, not really wide shots, but long shots, like a human's point of view would be. Yeah. It's really fucking cool. And seeing all these moments of like, you're stalking your heroine. 
Yeah. Right? It puts you into the mind of the killer. Mm-hmm. So you have to emotionally reconcile that. Uh, one of the best uses I've seen of this was a 2013 remake of Maniac mm-hmm. starring Elijah Wood, where the entire thing is, sh- almost the entire thing is shot from point, uh, first person. Yes. Um, and it's ter- it's it, it's terrifying for that because you, I, we'll talk about that movie, I think, eventually on here. Yeah. Because um, it's something I always want to talk about and not enough people have seen it. But it is uh, fantastic for that reason where it's like you have to be in the head of the killer the entire film. And yes. deal with them emotionally and deal with them sympathetically and ask yourself, how do I feel about them? This doesn't do that quite, but it creates that ability. Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely has. There are definitely a few shots where you're you're seeing through Michael Myers's eyes. Yeah, and I think that that also that idea was a huge huge thing for like found footage, um, yes. where often it, like and I'm and I'm specifically talking about um, the the creep series, um, yeah. where y- you. You do see Mark Duplass. You do. Obviously. It's a reversal of that. It's a rever- yeah. yeah, but there are certain moments where, y- y- like, he has the camera, or or you're you're walking through the cabin or wherever mm-hmm. they are through the woods, and you are at the point of view of Mark Duplass, his character. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the, that idea also did something huge for found footage, and it was a tool that found footage movies were able to utilize to do that exact same thing Absolutely. where you are in that you are in the space of, in the point of view of the quote unquote evil person of the film. Yeah. Once again, we've got Carpenter playing with color here too. Yep. Um, he created, he helped, he want his vision for it was to have this very surrealist sort of feel to the colors. Yeah. Uh, which he clearly did. And mm-hmm. that was, um, I'm trying to remember the movie he based that from. It's another famous horror film, and I can't think of which one it is, but he really wanted to like play with the surrealist color palette. Which is cool because, again, with the hinting of Michael Myers being supernatural mm-hmm. or having super superhuman abilities, it, it kind of also plays with that hazy dream logic yes. of it all, yeah. which is really cool. This is what we saw. Um, so this is another way that uh, it follows is just a full rip off of Carpenter. And I mean <laughs> yeah. that as a high compliment. Yeah. Um, they did it well. Of, I like yeah. that movie a lot. It's actually... I, I get shit and i get shit for saying this but like stop updating films into into high high residence uh sorry high res formats mm-hmm. that weren't shot that way right it pisses me off so much for home <laughs> media and stuff like that like having these like super super crisp images fucks with the art of the film like yeah. the, it was made that way for a reason and when you do these really really high speed versions of them yeah it fucks it take it strips that away and yeah. it looks like shit like we watched file you i think the first time you watched it follows was like that and it's like oh you just lost half the movie mm-hmm. and i was an asshole when i was talking about it but it made me very angry because i'm like let the, the directors make their choices right you know like yeah. they made a choice and you took it away from them and didn't ask right and i hate that shit um fair so it's really beautifully shot and it's in this really cool surrealist pal- color palette and that's what it follows did as well with all of the like soft pinks and things like that mm-hmm. and the haziness. We see it in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street with the same thing. Yeah. This like every like we talked about when we talked about the movie, like everything's super cluttered. Everything is yeah. like this really vibrant color palette uh, to give it dream feel and this is the same sort of idea. Um so let's see. What else was I going to talk about? Oh, there's a fun little behind the scenes thing that happens. Okay. I think I pointed it out to you once when we're following them past like the row of hedges. Yeah. Uh, 
Carpenter was apparently really pissed at the camera operator because he kept getting the shot wrong. Uh-huh. And so Carpenter just grabs it out of his hand but refused to throw out his cigarette and just starts shooting. And that's the shot that's in the film. So there's this big puff of cigarette smoke that comes into the screen because Carpenter wouldn't put down his cigarette to keep filming. As he was you angry. did tell me that. Yeah, it's yeah. one of my favorite little moments. I found that um, <laughs> Red Letter Media um, has yeah. these like uh, watch-alongs basically that they put out that you can just download. Um you like download the audio and then you sync it up with the movie that you're watching. You just mute the movie and watch uh, their commentary on it. Okay. And they do these awesome deep dives. And one of the times I watched Halloween with, again, previous guest Joe Wilson uh, was watching it through their commentary, and it's so much fun. That's how you they're learn also, that. Because like, they're drunk and they're making jokes, but yeah. Yeah. They also just have and like they make me look like a pamphlet <laughs> <laughs> in terms of their encyclopedic knowledge of film. Um, that's really cool, though. Yeah. I love that. Um, it, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I think love it's behind called, the scenes I think scene it's called Half in the Bag. Um, I'll have to look up the actual name of it. But it's there's a lot of fun stuff like that. But yeah, it's just Carpenter was pissed at the camera operators. Like, get the fucking shot right. Oh, my God, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so he just like, grabs the camera and just starts rolling. But he's just like is smoking with one hand and running the camera with the other. <laughs> love it. I love it. I, I love little behind the scenes um, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and this is another example of how well he works with actors as a director. Yeah. Everybody loves working with him, apparently. Like, no one has a bad thing to say about him as a director. That's good. We love non, non-problematic. non Yeah. Because there's fun stuff with that, too, of, like... It's, I just like looking at director's styles and how they work with actors. Yeah. Um, so, Jamie Lee Curtis said that, like, it was hard shooting the film out of sequence because it is a horror film and it's hard yeah. to shoot it out of sequence sometimes you always have to because of like the scale of destruction sometimes yes like the one of the first shots in the thing was the final shot of the thing yes um but they so he was like uh creating horror scale or like terror scales with his hand is i think what they called it yeah so he would be on set directing with uh with jamie lee curtis and he would be like okay so that scene you shot yesterday is a seven the scene you shot the day before is a six and he's got his hands in different places he's like this one's a fucking nine and a half no go right you're (laughs) like like, freaked the fuck out yeah yeah and um so nick castle said he got kind of a different experience of Carpenter where Carpenter, he kept asking him, was like, what's my motivation for the scene? Or he's like, your motivation is to move from this set to that set and not act, <laughs> which I think is cool. Like that's a, yeah. like you're trying to create this like hulking walking serial killer that doesn't emote and doesn't ever seem to be hurried. And he's like, yeah, don't act. Just yeah. Walk. I love that. Like that's a well, yeah. Like, I do that. That's a perfect direction. Yeah, because the second that you try to put anything on it, it turns into like something cheesy, as opposed to um, just something sinister and kind yeah. of off-putting. Because yeah, just someone walking, you know, at like a slow pace. Like again, no urgency. Mm-mm. Michael Myers has no urgency, which emits some sort of confidence that is super scary. Mm-hmm. And I think that also, I mean, if you really wanted to dive into it, is also a characteristic of, says white men, which I think this is a commentary on that in some way. Like there's this Intentionally weird, or not, yeah. Yeah, there's some weird confidence there of like, I'm going to get you no matter what. Like that sort of thing. Like Definitely. I don't have to, you won't catch me running to catch up with you. I am, you know, it, it's it's amazingly sinister. And I think it was a wonderful choice of either Deborah's or John Carpenter's or, or, or it was a collaboration. I don't know. I just know it yeah. was pretty brilliant. No. And I think that this movie is really one thing I love about Carpenter is his insistence on collaboration. 
Yeah. Um, I, I, as much as, like we talked about in the episode on the thing, as much as he has his finger in every single portion of this film, in yeah. all of his films, he's always collaborating with somebody. Yeah. Um, even if he does get pissed at camera operators. <laughs> I think it is nice to collaborate with people because then, you know, it's like, We've seen so many film directors just shove their head up their own asses and Mm -hmm. then they don't have this objectivity of their movies, you know, like they can't, they can't look at it from any other perspective than their own. And sometimes they're a little too close to it. Like Mm -hmm. I would, I'm going to get in trouble again, probably, but I would, I would say that Noah Baumbach was way too close to Marriage Story to make it any good. Yeah. Like it's way too, he's way too close to it. Yeah. And you know, this is, it. It's important to note that, like, sometimes it can help highlight how good a director is when you can highlight where one is not good at the thing that we're talking about, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not a random tangent about a different film. It's a point (laughs) being made because we use, you know, points of comparison for analysis. It's a pretty standard thing to do. Uh, Yeah. So I think that that's a, I think, yeah, Bombach's a good example. Um, He, he, I have never liked his movies because he does have his head up his own ass because he doesn't think that anybody else can do anything right. Yeah. Um, And... Won't say who told me this, but I know that he changes his mind constantly and decides different things all the time. And that's not a good thing to do as a director, have a vision and make it. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think that that's simplicity of idea, simplicity, simplicity of execution while still doing cool, complex things. is like, I think, one of the most carpenter things you can do. His, his concepts are not far-fetched. I mean, like, they're ridiculous. Like, Escape from New York is not a plausible situation. Right, but right. But he kind of, like, nuances them in some some way that that makes makes his style of filmmaking iconic yeah there's nothing convoluted about him is what yeah. I would say. like and that's when you talk about putting your head up your own ass that's a big thing it's like no be simple and humble in your idea and be clear and commanding in your execution yeah um telling someone what their terror level is is a clear communication of like hey you were this scared yesterday. Here's how, relatively how scared you are compared to that. That is that is a really good tangible note. I will say that yeah. as like if someone were to tell me that as an actor, I would just be like, yep, word. Yeah. Red. I mean, I, one of my favorite directors <laughs> I've ever worked with is not a good communicator. Mm-hmm. You had to learn his system, which was just by moving his very long arms in weird, complicated directions because he had a hard time speaking about what he wanted to say. He had a hard time right. putting words to what he wanted to do. And being able to just clearly and simply express something about a clear, simple idea and have everybody be on board with that, that's good directing. Yeah, absolutely. When you have to go into like long treatises about how you want a scene to be done. Like I direct this way. Yeah. And you can ask people I work with. I'm like, nope, you're going to do, I will occasionally do like weird little stories to bring it back around, to like go left to go right sometimes. Yeah. But even those are quick of like, hey, you know when it, the feeling when it's like this, 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 mm-hmm. bring that into this. Yeah. Do that, right? Like it's, it's always like, you know, a couple of sentences at most. Totally. Totally. And don't act is a great doing anti-performance is a really nice note. Like, yeah, that's the sort of like I'd say that that's probably the most carpenterish thing about like his actual onset directing. Yeah. Is everybody's like, yeah, he's clear. He just says, do this. Don't do that. Feel like this. Totally. Yeah, totally. And it, and it comes it comes across. I mean, there's a reason why we're doing a whole month on him. Mm-hmm. He's pretty iconic. Yeah. Like I keep saying I keep using that word. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's really all I had to talk about about this. Yeah, film. I mean, there's so much more to go into. We could talk about like we could go through and do the absolute legacy of him in this film. Yeah. Um, but that's not super necessary. We've already named a bunch of the films that we think are good and bad references to this, you know? Yeah. And I mean, they're, they're, oh my God, there is an extensive amount of research and opinions and 
everything about this movie, which, I mean, you know, like it or not, that's what makes a movie popular is people talking about it and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, for better or for worse. And yeah, I, yeah, I think this is one of the best films ever made. And it's, it's, I think it's great because it does exist in film history. You know what I mean? When Mm -hmm. I say that, that's another big Carpenter thing. It's like, he always, he knows where he lives in film history. We talked about it a little bit in the thing. We can talk about it in this. We've talked about this in this a little bit of like, he's got his reference to the thing. He's got a couple references to the thing from outer space. He's got yeah. um, his references to psycho. He's got his references to black Christmas. He's got his references to the exorcist. Like he, he knows where he lives. Yeah. And that's, what's really, really fun about horror just as a genre is that people pick and choose and take from, from storylines and mm-hmm. plots from, from before. And they just, put their own spin on it or make it better. They advance, you know, certain tropes, certain ideas and everything. And I think that that's what's so cool because there is truth to the idea that there are only a certain amount of narratives and and plots and everything. You just put them in a different setting and have a different um, viewpoint on them depending on who works on the film. For sure. Yeah. Which is which is super, super cool. That's where we get, you know, the subgenres. Mm-hmm. That's where we get the slasher. That's where we get, um, that's where we get the monster movie. That's where we get all these things, which is not a bad thing. No, it's not, not at all. and it's it doesn't make it predictable because again it's from someone's viewpoint and again that is why it's so great that he likes to collaborate because it's not just from his point of view the whole time. Yeah. He's had other hands on it. That's um, why I wouldn't call him on a tour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I think that about wraps wraps up Again, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think that about wraps us up with this movie. You guys know where to find us. We're on Instagram at Horror Babes Podcast. We're on Twitter at Horror Babes Pod, and you can always find us at horrorbabespod.com. Stay safe out there, guys. We're I think we can see the light at the end of the tunnel of of this thing. I'm I really hope so. I hope you guys are staying strong, staying safe. Um, so continue to social distance and wash your hands a bunch, and always wear your mask. And that's that's the only advice that I have for for you. Um, Watch more John Carpenter movies. Exactly, exactly. All right, until next time. Bye, babes. Hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Yeah, babe.